BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Safety is the top priority. We're not skipping any stages in the trials. And as these trials complete, the FDA and the CDC will go through that same rigorous process before any vaccines approved. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. With us today is Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwoody. You have been presiding over an extraordinary period of time, and it was an extraordinary moment, Dr. Arwoody, this week at Loretto Hospital in Austin. The first vaccines against the coronavirus, the one developed by Pfizer, was administered to the first five employees of that hospital, people who have been on the front lines of this pandemic. That must have been an extraordinary moment for you. Yeah, it really was. We have been waiting and waiting for vaccine, watching the science as the trials have been moving. It's been looking really good in terms of the data and being able to actually get it here to Chicago and start vaccinating the healthcare workers who've been out there every single day. We actually had folks from the Loretto Hospital, also Norwegian American Hospital and UIC, all part of that event all together. And it was a really exciting moment uh, for me and I think for Chicago. And an emotional one, the people who have seen colleagues die, patients die, they were the first in line. It has to be so exhausting emotionally for them. Was it emotional for you too? Yeah, I had the chance to talk um, actually with all five of the people who were doing the vaccinating and all five of the people who were getting vaccinated. And all of these folks have been working month after month and they were telling me stories about First of all, just the patients and in particular how hard it's been for them to be taking care of really sick patients and not be able to have the patient's family members by the bedside and just how, you know, COVID and its infectiousness has made that hard. They were telling me about some of the sacrifices they've needed to make with their own family members, sometimes keeping distance from children or being, you know, very careful about cleaning clothes, et cetera. And I think for me, I always love it when we can take all the science and all the numbers and all the statistics, which is, of course, where I spend a lot of my time in public health thinking and really get all the way down to individuals. And I really enjoyed the chance to talk to these folks. And it was doctors and nurses, but it was also patient care associates, all different types of healthcare workers, and see how excited they were, willing to step up for this vaccine, and how much it just meant because of the way they have been giving day after day for nearly a year here. So yeah, it was emotional, I think, for everybody in in good ways and in sort of uh, reflective ways. How are they doing? Have you heard anything about the side effects, if any? 
Yeah, they've been doing well. Every vaccine recipient in the city of Chicago and, in fact, across the whole U.S., after they receive vaccine, they are invited to enroll in a, in a program called V-SAFE for Vaccine Safe. It's not mandatory, but it's certainly recommended. And if people uh, put in their cell phone number, there's actually follow-up every single day for a week after the vaccine dose, and then weekly for about six weeks. And then they actually check in again at three months, six months, and 12 months. It's a way for us to make sure if people are having any side effects that they're reporting those. The CDC actually keeps track of this data, and if they're seeing anything concerning, they can reach out directly uh, to those uh, participants, the vaccine recipients. And so far, so good. It's not just these five recipients, but we've had already hundreds, thousands of people, healthcare workers in hospitals here in Chicago getting vaccinated. And I've certainly got a lot of friends who work in healthcare, including many who have been vaccinated, and they're sending me their pictures and telling me their arms feel good. And generally, it's been a really positive experience so far in Chicago. I couldn't be more pleased with how already this we've gotten started here and the logistics are going okay and people are getting vaccinated, which at the end of the day is the beginning of the end for us. So it's in terms of getting past COVID. So it's been a really good week. What are the side effects and how long do they last? Yeah. So generally in these trials, one of the main things, the big two questions that always want to get asked in the big vaccine trials are, is the vaccine safe and is it effective? Does it actually protect people against COVID? And then underneath that, we also want to understand what are the side effects. And side effects are different from serious safety events, right? If a vaccine is not safe or there's serious safety effects, it won't be approved. But what we've seen uh, in the trials where they ask every single person who got either the vaccine or a placebo, meaning like a saltwater injection, and they compare the groups between here, we did see about three quarters of people who got the vaccine reporting some sore arm, for example, just lasting a day typically, compared to only about 12% of the people who had gotten placebo. And then we also saw, you know, some percentage of folks reporting fatigue or headache or chills or muscle pain. Again, a good number of the placebo recipients also reported some of those, but there do seem to be some side effects typically lasting a day, no more than two days. And certainly where we think about the risk and benefit, the FDA felt, and I certainly agree looking at the data, that even if people do have some short-term uh, side effects, and all that is, that's your immune system learning how to fight off COVID and protecting you. Uh, it's not giving you COVID. It's not making you sick. Certainly, I, I myself choose vaccine over the potential of a day or two of these minor side effects for sure. Now we have the Moderna vaccine coming up for approval. What is the difference between those two and which one is better? Sure. The Moderna approval today, the FDA is looking at that data and will consider it for emergency use authorization. And if they approve that, the CDC will look at it probably this weekend both of these vaccines use really the same approach, the same technology. They use something called mRNA or messenger RNA. And what that is in the vaccine itself, there's a little piece of messenger RNA, which gives your muscle cells a message to make a protein. That's how it works. 
And the protein that your muscle cell makes is actually a little tiny, it's a little tiny piece of the spike on the coronavirus itself. And so the idea is that when you get this injection, there is no coronavirus at all in the vaccine. There's not live coronavirus. There's not dead coronavirus. There's not uh, even a piece of the coronavirus. There's just these instructions to tell your body and your immune system how to recognize COVID and fight it off. So it teaches your body how to recognize the spike protein on the coronavirus. And then the next time, if you were to experience coronavirus in after being vaccinated, your body has already learned that is intruder and it fights it off without ever making you sick. So both of these vaccines use that same technology. And in the um, initial data, certainly I was looking at it, the FDA is formally looking at it today. The efficacy, meaning how protective was it, was fantastic for both of these. It was 95% in the Pfizer vaccine. It was 94.1% in the Moderna vaccine. Those are the same in terms of how protective it is. That's not a significant difference. And the good thing was it was protective across age groups, across race, ethnicity groups, across people with underlying conditions. Honestly, that is better than I think anybody was hoping for in terms of a vaccine that looks to be safe and effective. And so I think where we think about the differences between these vaccines, it's more comes down to some of what we need to do on the logistics side. So they both need to be kept cold. The Pfizer has to be this ultra cold, whereas the Moderna is more just in the frozen state. The Pfizer vaccine requires two doses 21 days apart. The Moderna requires two doses 28 days apart. We have a lot of systems built at the Chicago Department of Public Health on all of that to make sure that the cold chain is done right, uh, that people are getting the correct second dose, that they're getting their reminders about their second dose. But fundamentally, both of these two vaccines work really in the same way, and I would expect them to have similar efficacy when we're using them. There are a few other vaccines that are still in trials, just so people are aware of that. There's a vaccine coming that may only be a one-dose vaccine. There's some vaccines coming that may be much less expensive to produce, things like that. But those are all still in the trials, and safety is the top priority. We're not skipping any stages in the trials. And as these trials complete, the FDA and the CDC will go through that same rigorous process before any vaccine is approved. And when my turn comes up, I'm not going to have a choice. No, I want the Moderna. No, I want Pfizer. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We'll be really the main decisions between which vaccines go where is mostly about these logistics. So, for example, with the Moderna vaccine, because it only needs to be kept frozen, there's some more flexibility there. Our outpatient clinics, for example, are more likely to be able to handle frozen vaccine than they are this ultra-cold minus 80 Celsius. We at the Chicago Department of Public Health have spent a lot of time and, and resources building up the capacity. We can hold uh, more than 130,000 doses at one time of ultra-cold. And so where Chicago Department of Public Health is doing mass vaccination, for example, will likely use the Pfizer vaccine. It is possible months on the line if as additional vaccines come online, there could be some recommendation if we saw that one vaccine was much more effective, for example, older people. But at this point, honestly, when you've got 95% effectiveness, this is a fantastic outcome for everybody. 
and it's not going to be one or the other. It's going to be, are you getting the COVID vaccine? And then we'll be following everybody up, no matter what vaccine they get. And the goal is really just going to be getting people vaccinated um, as quickly as we can here as vaccine is available while continuing to monitor safety and following up in a really careful way with everybody, regardless of which vaccine they get. Now, will we need to be vaccinated against the coronavirus every year or two, like the flu, or just once in a lifetime? Yeah, it's a really good question, and we don't have the full answer to that yet because, of course, coronavirus itself has only been around for about a year, and even the earliest vaccine trials have been going maybe six six, seven months. And so it's going to take some time to really know how long the vaccine is protective for. But the good news is a lot of the vaccine experts think that this is likely to be longer acting. The reason that you have to get a flu vaccine every year is because the flu vaccine has mutated a lot. There are lots of different strains of flu vaccine. So literally every year, the scientists look and say, which are the strains of influenza that are circulating the most right now in the world? And they pull in and they make a vaccine to protect against those strains. But because there's so much mutation, you have to get one every year. The COVID vaccine has not had a lot of that mutation to date. And we really think it's likely that protection would last longer. Might you need to get a booster shot down the line? It's certainly possible. We think about tetanus. There's a booster shot every 10 years. Even if this turned out to be something that was a yearly vaccine like flu, I don't think that's likely. It would still, obviously, I think where we can get widespread vaccine here, it would get us past the effects that we've seen, the really crippling effects on society with a vaccine that's, that's this safe and this effective. Now, if I get vaccinated, does that mean that I can go about my life without fear of contracting the virus? And can I still be asymptomatic and pass it on to somebody else. Yep. So those are two questions that uh, I think are some of the ones we're hearing the most. So one is that certainly early on here in particular, we are still vaccinating a relatively small number of people and we still have so much COVID around in Chicago. I really want to emphasize that risk for COVID is still very high here. We will still be recommending that people, even around vaccine, continue to wear masks and social distance. This is what we're doing generally as a society. And even we're thrilled that this vaccine is 95% effective, but there is no such thing as a vaccine that is 100% protective. There's some secondary endpoints that we're looking. The vaccine also seems to protect against severe or be, be quite protective against severe outcomes. People who have got the COVID vaccine were less likely not only to get COVID, but to get severe COVID that would put them in the hospital. But we are still very much learning about that question of could there still be people who are asymptomatic, for example. The early data is suggests that it's likely that the vaccine not only protects you, but also protects you from spreading. But honestly, that is still one of the pieces that we'll be learning a lot more about. Certainly early on here, we are encouraging people to get vaccinated as their turn comes up in line. It's very protective for them, but it's not 100%. And as we learn more, we presume it will be very protective for others. But in the short term, we will still continue to do the things that help protect everybody. So that means continue to wear your masks, social yes. distance, all that stuff. Don't go in crowds or whatever. Don't gather yes. in large dinners or whatever. 
Yeah, and I think, again, as more of this rolls out and as we start to see our case numbers come down and it comes under control, we'll be able to back off on those recommendations. It's basically, I think, if someone's been vaccinated, they can feel quite secure that they are not likely to get COVID, but it's not 100%. And while we're still learning some of these pieces around making sure that it also protects you you know, from spreading, we will ask people to continue to do that. But I anticipate that will be something as COVID comes under better control and vaccine is going to be a huge part of that. As we are able to turn the dial to reopen society, we'll also be able to back off on some of that. Mayor Lightfoot acknowledged this week again that the challenge is to earn the trust of Black and Latino residents who are very suspicious of these vaccines, any vaccines really. What specifically is the most important part of that effort to change minds and, and break down those barriers? Yeah, I do think that in a lot of ways, the, the communication here and the conversations here around vaccine are the most important part of all of this. The science looks good, but there is a very real history here related to experimentation, related to racism within public health and medical systems, and it's wrong not to acknowledge that. We absolutely welcome and expect questions about this vaccine. I love to hear questions from people, regardless of their background, who really wanted to know the details of how do I know this vaccine looks safe? How do I know it looks effective? I do want to underscore that in all of the, the, the trial data that's come out, this vaccine has been shown to be equally safe and effective across all race and ethnicity groups, including Latinx and Black. And we still are not seeing as many people of color as we would like in these trials. But I can tell you the good news is that here in Chicago, we have a lot of really we have a lot of people of color who themselves are researchers and scientists and have been part of these trials. And our representation has been much more diverse in clinical trials than in a lot of other settings. So if you look, for example, at the Moderna data, UIC was an enrolling site for Moderna. There's tens of thousands of people who are enrolled in these clinical trials, but 75% of the people who enrolled in the Moderna trial in Chicago were not white. And that's really important, I think, because knowing that these trials have been done not just in people somewhere in the world, but they've been done here in Chicago and they've been more representative than in some other places, I think is important for some of this messaging. But also, I think as we look ahead here, we are going to be really thinking about who is the best messenger for these conversations will be as more healthcare workers get vaccinated, we will be asking them if they live or work in a certain zip code, if they're willing to volunteer to pair up with religious leaders, community leaders, neighborhood block groups, community groups, and have conversations really answering those questions about vaccine at a community level. We think really those individual level conversations, particularly from trusted healthcare workers, are going to be really important in acknowledging the past, talking about what this science look like and making people feel confident in their decisions around vaccination. But I heard Alderman Rod Sawyer say the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, for example, was not that long ago. Yeah, and that's the right. disparities in health care and health outcomes and the death gap between blacks and whites continues to this day. And so yeah. what happens if you can't change people's minds in those communities? 
Yeah, and I appreciated him really raising that explicitly. It is not that long ago. This is not, we're not talking about something from centuries ago, and it's not just Tuskegee. There have been other really racist experimentation. There's been a lot of really unfortunate things that have happened in medical research in particular. There has also been a lot of work to call that out and to make sure that there are procedures in place around things like consent, things like enrollment that are that came out as a direct result of some of that history. And I think in a lot of ways, I can't and I can't answer for the past. I can answer and help explain why I feel confident in the current vaccine trials that have been done, what that process was like in terms of consent, what that process was like in terms of representation. But I also recognize I'm a white woman. I'm not necessarily the best person to always bring that forward. And that's where we, I very much appreciated, we have a lot of really prominent scientists and researchers here in Chicago who are Black and Latinx who have served on our vaccine scientific work group here, looked at all of the data with us, signed on to some statements which you can find online really about the process here. And not just them, but many others have volunteered to say, I want to help explain why I am getting the vaccine. I know this history, but I am feeling confident in it. And we really will be looking to a lot of these trusted messengers. I want to make sure I'm providing the science information, but then recognizing that this is a really real conversation that we should not shirk away from. We welcome these questions, and I feel very confident in the data, but I would not presume that people would automatically feel confident in it. What about celebrity influencers, social media influencers, people like Chance the Rapper, for example, somebody young or somebody who is a really well-known celebrity within the community? Yeah, so I think we have certainly had a lot of interest from our from influencers here in Chicago. You think about the White Sox, for example, who really said, we know that you're wanting to reach Latinx Chicagoans. What can we do to help, you know, carry some of that message and bring it forward? All of the sports, a lot of the other celebrities, we've been hearing interest in vaccine. The thing we want to be really careful of, though, is not letting celebrities skip the line from a vaccine perspective. And so true. That's a dilemma because if you have a celebrity, they can spread the word. But on the other hand, you don't want them pushing to the front of the line. That's right. And I, I really do think of a lot of our prominent healthcare workers here in Chicago as celebrities, a different kind of celebrity. But there are folks here who have really outsized voices and influence, and we'll be looking to them as some of our original influencers in a very science-based way. But then as we start to expand out, we're thinking about essential workers, people with underlying conditions, people who are older, more and more we are going to be able to see some of these people getting vaccinated. It's a tricky question, honestly, because, and it's one I'm sure that we're going to continue to talk about here. I just want to make sure in Chicago, particularly while vaccine is limited, we're balancing, wanting to make sure that the groups that most needed are prioritized with really building confidence in any group that we may see less likely to seek vaccination. The mayor, for example, has said, I am ready and willing to get vaccine when it's my turn and not wanting to jump the line in terms of somebody who has a higher level of risk than she does. But this is going to be, 
I think, a national conversation really at the same time. And I very much appreciated people like you, like you heard the Alderman Sawyer say at the press conference, like, it's not my turn yet, but I absolutely plan to get this vaccine as soon as it is my turn. And we will be seeing more examples of of people, prominent people being vaccinated. But you've got to balance that against the uh, vaccine supply at the same time. So the pecking order is the hospital workers, the healthcare workers who don't work in hospitals, and then the nursing homes and the skilled nursing facilities, the assisted living and, and so on. And then after that, the rest of us. And the pecking <laughs> order there being first responders, essential workers, however you define them, and then people at high risk of contracting COVID because they have underlying conditions and then people 65 and older. So what, how, what is that pecking order likely to look like? Do you know yet? Do they, have they determined it yet federally? Yes, exactly. So we do anticipate, and exactly as you note, at the federal level, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices through the CDC, they are the ones who make all the recommendations related to vaccine, not just for COVID, but for any vaccine. And the only part that they have formally voted on is about the long-term care facilities and the healthcare workers. So they are our 1A group. That's where we started. They have signaled that those next groups, essential workers, people over 65, people with underlying conditions, are likely to be in that next phase, but we don't yet know the exact details of when that will be. What I can tell you is that here in Chicago, we are planning ahead for all of this. So certainly, even within health workers, I think people sometimes don't recognize the wide variety of what that includes. So certainly, we're starting with the hospitals. That's the highest risk setting. Long-term care will roll into that shortly. But we actually are including, for example, paramedics who are out bringing in potentially COVID patients day after day. They fall in there. Dentists fall in there, morticians, home health aides, all different types of, of providers. And so I think really starting in January, we'll be seeing some expansion there. And there's about 400,000 people in Chicago, if you use that broad definition of healthcare workers. So it's not a small group. And then from there, again, we'll be waiting for the federal guidance to know exactly, but we'll have a lot of focus certainly on these other congregate settings, whether that's our homeless shelters, whether that's group home type settings, anywhere where we've seen significant outbreaks, we'll be pretty anxious to be vaccinating there really as soon as vaccines available as well. And then essential workers, I do think we're going to see this more specifically defined. At the health department here, we're especially focused in public-facing workers, especially those who may have other barriers to vaccination. We, we plan to, for example, work with large employers once we get to this point. So if you've got a large grocery store, we'll want to pair that grocery store with a vaccinating partner, make it easy for people in that grocery store setting to be able to get vaccinated at work. We'll be working with the people, the transportation industry, and again, trying to make that as easy as we can. And our real goal is pushing this vaccine out to as many partners as we can. We will already, even in the healthcare worker stage, be starting to push vaccine out to some of our clinics, especially if they have more staff and they can handle some of the, the freezer storage. And then we will be looking, the best place for you to get vaccinated always is with your trusted healthcare provider. And so as we start to see people with underlying conditions and those over 65 come into the mix, first and foremost, we'll be wanting people to do that through their healthcare provider so they can have the conversation. But the city will also certainly be standing up mass vaccination sites and the, who's eligible for that will continue to expand really as we get more vaccine and as these phases move ahead. So lots and lots of work happening and we're 
we're very focused right now on this 1A piece, but doing planning for whatever comes in terms of the high-level prioritization and making sure, again, that we're really thinking about equity at all points here in Chicago as we plan our vaccine. When do you see everyday life in Chicago returning to normal, going to work, going to restaurants, going to the movies, outdoor concerts? What's summer's going to be like in Chicago in 2021? Taste of Chicago, Lollapalooza, 4th of July fireworks. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that this year, this all of 2021 is going to be about turning that dial again. We've talked about all along that we don't go, we don't have a switch on and off. It's about turning the dial. We will continue to use the same metrics, certainly in these first few months that we've been using all along related to cases and positivity, how full our hospitals are. And we hope to be able to do some reopening there, even while vaccine numbers are relatively low. But the good news is as we start getting vaccine, especially into these high risk settings, long-term care facilities have had a lot of cases, have had a lot of deaths. Uh, A lot of people in long-term care have had to transfer to hospitals if they get sick. Where I think about the possibility of having very high vaccine uptake, hopefully, across our long-term care facilities in both residents and staff, that's a pretty big help already to case numbers, to the threat to hospitals, et cetera. And it's only going to get better from there as we're able to vaccinate more and more people. Some of this depends on how the other vaccine trials go. I think if we are able to get additional vaccine online and coming here and we've got more safe and effective vaccines, that gives us more ability to push it out. So much of the winter here is December, January, February is probably going to be primarily focused on the healthcare workers. We'll see exactly the timing, but I'm guessing certainly in the first quarter, maybe late February, early March, we might start moving into that next group. There's a lot of people who fall in essential workers and people with underlying conditions, but I think my hope is by late spring heading into summer, ideally we'll have enough vaccine available that it is widespread and it is more about making sure we're um, helping encourage people who may have been hesitant at the beginning to get vaccinated. And then children are the other question. They've not been in the trials to date. And while the research is happening to, again, ensure that the vaccine is safe and effective for kids, figure out the dosing, I I don't think we'll be vaccinating children anytime before summer. And so I'm hopeful that really by summer, a lot of things are going to be open again and that really by fall, we will be hopefully back. We'll be starting to really put a lot of this behind us. And I, I said at the press conference, by this time next year, I very much hope COVID will be in the rear view mirror entirely. But there's just a lot of questions, of course, within that timeline. And the biggest thing, though, is people continuing to do the things that we already know work, especially early on here in the year when the risk is highest. And then if we have good confidence in vaccine and the vaccine continues to be as safe and effective as it certainly um, has been in all the trials to date, that will get us there sooner. And I'm really feeling confident about being able to continually move ahead with reopening over this year. 2021 is going to be a better year than 2020. No way, no question about that. The EEOC said today that employers can require this uh, coronavirus uh, vaccine before allowing people to return to work. Do you expect that to be widespread? Yes, I think right at this exact moment, I think that conversation is in the wings a little bit, because right now the vaccine has an emergency use authorization from FDA. We're just getting started with it. And more importantly, vaccine is not widely available yet. I think once we start thinking about a potential for mandatory vaccine, 
there needs to be more, much more availability for the data, full authorization from the FDA, et cetera. But I do think I've heard already some of the airlines saying later in 2021, I really am only going to be letting people fly who are vaccinated. I think we may see settings where people are making this a, a requirement. The, the city of Chicago has no intention of making COVID vaccination a requirement for all residents in Chicago. That's not how this works. But I would imagine that we would see businesses or other settings down the line potentially making this mandatory. But I think it's a little bit of a preliminary conversation, to be honest. Uh, the main focus right now is on getting vaccines going, building confidence in it, making sure that it continues to perform well in the real world. And when it's much more widely available, I think that is the, the more appropriate time for, for those conversations. But I, I recognize the interest in it. And how long will it be before we see each other's lips, before we see someone <laughs> smile again without a mask? <laughs> it's going to be coming. It's going to be coming in 2021. I do think, though, that in some ways, we've all learned to think a little bit differently about what risk we may be bringing to others if we are going to work sick, even if you have a cold or you think you have the flu. I think we'll see masks around more, even though not in this universal way, probably for some time to come. And I'm hopeful that people will recognize that when someone is really sick, we don't really want your germs and make, encouraging people to do that and making sure that we have sick leave policies and family leave policies that allow people to stay home when they're sick. Um, these are some of the kinds of lessons I hope will outlive coronavirus. Masks are going, the, the, I was talking to somebody at the, the Smithsonian, actually, who they're thinking about how to be capturing the article, the history of COVID, and masks are going to be so much of that. They've become not only a way to protect protect Chicago, but they've become fashion statements. They've become ways to yeah, literally Nancy have Pelosi. a billboard on she your has one for, She has a mask for every outfit, Nancy Pelosi. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they, they are, if, if, if 2020, if the symbol for 2020 was the mask, I hope the vaccine is the symbol for 2021. And uh, that eventually the, I'm sure that the universal mask wearing is not something that we're going to need, obviously, forever and ever. And over this year, we will start to be able to dial down on that. Okay, Dr. Arwady, thank you so much for your extraordinary leadership in this awful time. Happy New Year, healthy New Year, a better New Year. It's certainly not going to be, it can't be worse than this one, that's for sure. Thank you so much, and we'll see you all next year. Thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time. 